on the cutting edge of the Messianic movement. Solus Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solus Radio. He was called Ish Hamudot, sweet man. The Lord has given him a special title, a special benefit to be called like this by the Lord. Here he is in chapter 7, having another revelation. He's having another dream, a vision from the Lord. Part 11 of Daniel, which means Adonai is my judge. The four beasts, chapter 7, verse 1 of book of Daniel. Many Bible believers, or I would say prophecy teachers, have paralleled this chapter with chapter 2 of Daniel. Let me uh, refresh your memory regarding chapter 2. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon having a dream. And in his dream, he sees a statue with a head of gold, with a breast of silver, arms and breast of silver, with thighs of brass, and then legs of iron with the feet and toes mixed, iron mixed with clay. And as you know, the Chachamim, or the soothsayer, the stargazers, and all the wise men of Babylon, not only that couldn't interpret the dream, the king asked them to tell him what the dream was. Because I believe that in his excitement, he forgot the dream. However, as they're about to be killed, all of them, by the king's decree, Daniel, our dear friend, tells the king, hold on, time out. I will not only give you the interpretation, I will tell you what the dream is. And he goes home and he prays before the Lord and Adonai gives him the dream and the interpretation. And of course, with that, Daniel has been elevated to the highest degree other than the king in the kingdom of Babylon. Shortly after that, Daniel finds himself being relegated to a second or third degree of almost a retired citizen because King Nebuchadnezzar died and his son Balshetzar took the reign and as I told you before, his name was also Evil Merodach, which means a rebellious fool. And this rebellious fool decides to have the greatest feast ever. And he has this great feast and the bring, and the, as it says, in the, uh, in the advice of the wine, which means he was so drunk out of his mind that in that moment he said and gives it an order, bring the vessels that have been taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And of course, you know the rest of it, the handwriting on the wall that came and said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. You have been counted, weighed, and found wanting, and therefore you will fall at the hand of the Persians. And that night, indeed, he was slain as King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the second empire of the vision, of the dream, which is the head of gold is Babylon, the silver 
chest and arms is the Medo-Persian Empire. The brass thighs are the Greek empires. And then eventually the legs, which are iron, and then iron mixed with clay is the Roman Empire. Meaning four empires into the world from that moment on. And of course they have been others as well. But these are the ones that have been given a dead dream. And of course now we're into the second kingdom, the second empire, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. However, Daniel, and this is one of the arguments that many have against the book of Daniel that says that it was written after the fact. You know, if you knew a little Hebrew and some Aramaic, as I am blessed to have, some of, it, some of you know that it is by default that I learned the Aramaic language. It was with the uh, uh, blessing of the rabbi that had a long stick in his hand. And if I refused or made any reference to the fact that I don't want to study this ancient, unusable, worthless language, if I made any notion of it, of course, I'll be smacked. And I was smacked a few times. But indeed, by God's grace and by default, I have learned that although didn't want to. And as I was reading, and I continued to read the book of Daniel, as you know from chapter 2 in the Hebrew, original Hebrew text, which I call, you know, many of you have many different in, uh, translations. Some of you have the King James, the New King James, and... Uh, uh, the living, the NIV, and so on and so forth. I have been blessed to read King David original in the Hebrew language. So in the Hebrew language, the book of Daniel between chapter 2 and chapter 8 is written in the Aramaic language. And after the chapter 8, it will continue in the Hebrew. And the reason why, because in the first two chapters, and after chapter 8, it talks about the history of Israel. And in between, it is talking about the time of the Gentiles. The time when the four Gentiles' kingdom ruled the world. So now, as the argument against Daniel, that it was written under the fact, if you read it again, as I said, in the original languages, you see that it wasn't so. Why? Time is too short to explain that to you. Come to one of my uh, Hebrew or uh, MJ 101 classes and we'll have more time to talk about it. But then as Daniel sees this vision, he sees that uh, uh, dream, the Lord is showing him even further into the future vision. Many Bible teachers says that this is the repetitious of chapter 2. I'm here to submit to you that this, this is not the fact. This is not the case here. And I will show you from Scripture that it is talking about, of course, the end time, but talking about different four end times empires. And as we read here, Daniel says here in verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Belshazzar was the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, also known as Evil Merodach, the rebellious fool, Daniel had a dream and visions 
of his head while he was in bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea is known, if you are in the Middle East, if you are in Israel, okay, and he was in Babylon, which is east of Israel, you're talking about the great sea, you're talking about the Mediterranean Sea. And even until today, we call it Hayam HaTichon, middle, the middle ocean or middle sea that is in between three continents. The continent of Asia, the continent of Africa, and the continent of Europe. And which leads you into the Atlantic, which takes you into the other continent, which is the continent of the Americas. Are we clear until here? Good. So he sees that, and he sees that there are four, uh, there are four winds from the four corners of the, of the heavens stirring up the sea. The Hebrew says here that the megichot, ruchot hashamayim, megichot layam hagadol. Not only that are, they're stirring up the, stirring up the sea, they are rising, rising in such a force out of the sea. Meaning they come out of nowhere almost, unexpectedly. Just to illustrate that, one of the uh, uh, documentaries that I've seen lately, that they talk about these uh, special nuclear submarines uh, that uh, the U.S. Navy has, and they showed one of them what they call that, you know, like uh, leaping out of the water. Have you seen it? When you see this giant giant vessel just like a, a huge Leviathan, you know, like a huge whale, just jumping out of the water. This is the illustration that he says. It's not just stirring up the sea. I mean, it's jumping out. Like you see a great whale, or you see the, uh, we see the killer whale when they jump out of the sea. You're not expecting, all of a sudden, when you're whale watching, all of a sudden you see and everybody screams, yeah, look at that, and the cameras, click, 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 you know, looking up at the great thing. This is exactly what we see in here where people are just simply going on their own direction, their own way. As Yeshua said, like in the days of Noah, right? People are just going and celebrating and they're getting married and giving up. Meaning life is usual. Nothing new under the sun. Let's just go on. Whatever happened, happened. Que sera, sera. You know, we don't need to spend too much time worrying about these things. Things going to happen. That's it. God is in control and it's going to happen. Well, let me tell you something. This is good for ignorant people. Knowing that you guys are not ignorant, and at least, you know, I hope so, sitting under my teaching, that you learn something from what I'm teaching. So here, we're going to pay attention to what is happening to us during our lifetime. Not only in the future, but is happening to us as we speak. Now, he sees these great things and he says here, a four, and four, verse three, a four great beasts, chayot, animals, that unrecognizable, unrecognizable, come up from the sea, each different from one another. 
Look at this. I mean, I saw this illustration or this picture coming out of the sea. You see them coming out, you know, four different ones. And they are a resemblance of animals that we know, but he calls them chayot. He calls them uh, 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 animals that are somewhat recognizable, but somewhat unrecognizable. And he continues and he says in verse 4, The first was like a lion. And head of eagles wing, and had eagles wings. I watched till the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Many say, many Bible scholars and interpreters say that this is again the same as the head of gold of the of the Babylonian Empire. Let me submit to you that this is not the case. Although it has many and much resemblance of the same prophecy that was in chapter 2 of Daniel, this is different. This is propelling us into the future 2,500 years. We are now in current days. Or let us say, let's go back 200 years. So somewhere around... 52, uh, I mean, 2200 years forward. The, the lion in our modern vernacular is considered to be the British Empire. The lion represented and still representing the British Empire until today. The British Empire is supposed to be the one that said on it or about it that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Correct? They had the largest navy in the world and not only that, immediately after the um, the uh, uh, founding of uh, the United States of America or the Americas at that time by uh, uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, shortly after the settlers came into this land and then they the English took over. And it became an English colony. The U.S. was an English colony. You know, at least this is what I have learned in uh, American History 101. No, I never took that. I grew up in Israel. But it, <laughs> I know a little bit of history. But here, they are considered, the lion is considered the symbol or the emblem or the coat of arm of the British Empire. And it was taken, it was taken from Richard, the lion's heart. In 1177, when he led the crusade over to Jerusalem, he raised the flag as the lion. And that's why he called himself Richard the Lion's Heart. And since this time of Richard the Lion's Heart, the old British monarchs, all English monarchs, or they call it the United Kingdom, have used the lion as their symbol. Until today, even the queen of today, and the princess, they're all using as their coat of arms, the lion. Now, why they use that as a lion? First of all, we know that a winged lion was not an obscure, unknown thing, even at the time of the Babylonian Empire. This relief that we see here, this picture, is a winged lion that is... Uh, made on, out of stone, it was carved out of stone, 
in it is in the uh, Pergamon Museum in Berlin that is part of the Ishtar Gate. I don't know if you know, but the Ishtar Gate, you know, like many great uh, uh, historical archaeological relics that has been found in the East, in the Middle East, and then even all the way into China, that the British, you know, would rule the world. They looted everything. They looted every single uh, uh, archaeological uh, of value artifact that they could, and they took it. And some of the archaeologists, of course, were Germans, and the Germans have excavated uh, old Babylon, and they disassembled the entire or a great portion of the Ishtar Gate, and they took it stone by stone by crates all the way to Berlin and reassembled it over there. I've seen it in my own eyes. This is really amazing. One of the things that you see, you know, there's a great big mountain that was carved out of Egypt, you know, that is sitting in the British Museum and reassembled there. I mean, it's been done like this so many times. So a winged lion was not something that um, uh, was unusual, okay? However, what Daniel is seeing, he's not seeing the Babylonian, the Babylonian winged lion is supposed to be strong and swift. Meaning he can really get at you with all the strength that the lion has and get you. But you know that the lion is not the swiftest and fastest animal. You know, and the lion himself, the male, would not do the killing, but the female does. She does the hunting. However, the cheetah is the fastest. We know that, right? From Animal Channel. I watch that too. (laughs) National Geographic. Anyway, but... The idea here that this one is so strong, such a strong animal that can devour anything. However, because it has the wings of uh, uh, an eagle, it can really fly fast and swiftly conquer. And indeed, the Babylonian Empire was such one and was swiftly conquered the entire known world of that time and ruled that for quite some time. But the British have used the lion for a different reason. Why is that? There is such a thing in modern theology that is called British Israelism. You may have not heard about this, but British Israelism goes like this. British Israelism is nothing else than another replacement theology. And replacement theology is something very simple that means that Israel, because of refusal, which is a lie by itself, of receiving the Messiah. Many, most of the uh, 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 followers of Messiah were Jews, by the way. Israel did not reject him. However, the leadership of Israel rejected the Messiah, but not the people of Israel. So, here it is, already debunking this idea. So, replacement theology means that Israel has rejected the Messiah, and therefore all the blessing comes to the church, comes to the Gentile church, and therefore the cursing goes on to Israel. And British Israelism takes it even a step farther, which means that that now we are the British Empire, and we are the one that carrying the throne of David. This is one of the reasons why every monarch uh, in the uh, recent history of the British Empire or the British monarchy like to be circumcised. 
Why they like to be circumcised? Because they said, if we are now the descendants, and we are the one that replaced the kingdom of, of David in Jerusalem, and we are the continuation of the kingdom of David, we need to be circumcised. We need to be clean like the Jewish are. But let me tell you something. This is, this is one of the greatest lies that out there. I mean, this is just a foolish thing. To think that God has abandoned His people. If God will abandon His people, He's a liar. And you don't want to follow a liar. You want to follow a God that is true to His word and He keeps His promises. That's who God is. He was, He is, and He is forever will be. Now the British... Under this notion that they are now the kingdom of David, you know, and kingdom of David is what? What is the symbol of Jerusalem? Was and is even now the Lion of Judah. And who is the Lion of Judah? No other than Yeshua, the Messiah. So they take that, and the British, now you see that, they take that, that they are the Lion of Judah, and what we see here is is indeed the Lion of Judah that used to be. You know, King David himself, he killed what? He said, the Lord, when he fought Goliath, he says, Adonai, my God, that saved me from the mouth, from the, uh, from the mouth of the lion and from the claws of the bear will save me from this uncircumcised Philistine as well. And God did. So the British have usurped the power from Israel, from King David, and now they say, we are the ones. But let me tell you something. He, we in Israel have no much love for the British. We have endured plenty of the rule. So did America, so is India, so is China, so is most of the world, because that was a great, great, great empire. But what happened to the British? And as you can see, you know, here we have a lion and we have a unicorn. And why do they have a unicorn? Because now it became a united kingdom, which was the um, symbol, the unicorn was the symbol of uh, uh, Scotland. And when they become uh, part of the Scottish, the Scottish, and the Irish, and the Scottish, and all the rest of them became part of the United Kingdom, they brought the symbols as well. Listen. It may not mean much today to many people, but symbolism and coat of arms still means a lot to a lot of people. That is why at every football game, which, by the way, I never go, before they start the game, what they do? They salute the flag of the United States of America because symbolism means a lot. Now, the British have ruled the world. Not only rule the world, they have ruined the world. They are the ones that are responsible for most of the world mayhem, especially in the Middle East where it counts, of what is happening today. By the way, just to let you know, there was no country of Iraq, there was no country of Saudi Arabia, there was no country of Jordan, there was nothing of that. There was Israel, which they have perpetuated the name Palestina, which was a curse to the Jewish people, because it was renamed in, 19, in uh, 135 AD, but 
by uh, Caesar Hadrian in order to insult the Jews. And rather than to call it Judea, they called it and they changed it to the name Palestina after the Philistines, the hated enemies of, of, of Israel. And so the British continued the humiliations. And not only that, when oil was found in the Middle East, all of a sudden they have carved the Middle East. And they, what used to be Arabia, they call it now Saudi Arabia. Why? Because there was a family of the Saud, which nothing were other than Bedouin family. And they're the one, the ruling family. And they made them rule that area with all, um, a lot of revenues of the oil that was found was brought into the loot. Again, you have to follow the money. Follow the money, you'll find all the answers to all your questions. And then they brought it, of course, into the empire, because they had the greatest uh, uh, navy in the world, and they were subjugating countries after countries, you know, to, to in order to promote their own um, uh, lifestyle. Now, they carved Saudi Arabia, and then they took, there were three brothers of the Saud family, and they put one in uh, 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 Jeddah, and they said, you know, now you are the ruler of this area, and they carved it, and it will be Saudi Arabia. They took another guy, and they put him in Baghdad, and they said, now you're going to become the king of Iraq. There was no Iraq, but it used to be called, until that time, if you know, you know, when we were young, you know, in the history book, it still used to be called, what? Mesopotamia. Right? Remember this? Some of us, you know, that are a little older than 30, you know, because now they're rewriting history for our youth, they're rewriting history, and they're calling it, you know, the country of Iraq. But there was no country of Iraq. And then in 1922, uh, uh, Winston Churchill, as the head or the minister of uh, uh, the colonial minister, you know, bowing down, bowing down to the pressure of the third brother of the Saud family and to the Arabs, of course. Why? Because there is oil there. Or in Texas, we call it all. <laughs> they found all there. And so in order to appease them, he took a pen and one swoop of the pen, he carved three quarters of the promised land and gave it to the Arabs. And then we Jews were had the little bitty piece and we said, we'll take it no matter what. Now the British came to Israel in 1917. In 1917, you have to understand, for 400 years, little over 400 years, the Ottoman Empire, which is a Muslim empire and was the ruling power, of Islam, all the Pachas, or the, say, the Pachas, came and they were sitting in Istanbul, sitting in Izmir, which is Smyrna, and then there were a lot of them were absentee owners of a lot of the land, which we know today. And they ruled all the way from, from Turkey south, all the way and through Egypt, until the, to the borders of Africa. Meaning, when I'm talking about Africa, I'm talking about south of Egypt and the Sudan and, and, and so forth. So the Turks were there, and the Turks were no uh, friends of the Jews by, by any stretch of the imaginations. They were cruel, they were very, very 
bad, and the history uh, uh, history tells us they were actually uh, 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 not very successful. To the point is, to the point that in 1914, when world First World War started, when the First World War started, it was Turkey, Germany, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austria. Hungary was part of world, was a European empire at that time. Germany was another power. And they united with um, uh, Turkey against the Russians to the east and France and Britain. And eventually, you know, the Europeans in the two conflicts that they had, they could never settle it. Until who came in? Who? Uncle... Who? Uncle Sam. I wanted to say Uncle Harry, but Uncle Harry is the bagels. That's the Jewish uncle. (laughs) Uncle Sam. So here we are at World War I. God has taken the country of Israel and Jerusalem, which was under the Islamic rule, and removed them and brought... The Christian Empire. And of course, a lot of the Middle Eastern Muslims saw it again as the Crusaders coming back again. But at that time, there were many, in 1917, there were quite a few uh, generals, quite a few ministers within the British empires that were godly people. That some of them were really great students of prophecy. For example, if we take one of them was General Allenby. General Allenby saw that as a fulfillment of prophecy. And as he came to Jerusalem and approaching the Jaffa Gate, he dismounted his horse and he walked into, he said, into the land where the Messiah was born. In his city where he's going to rule, I have to come in as a humble servant, not as a conqueror. And he walked in. You know, not, not one shot was, was, was fired over the, the uh, victory of the British over Jerusalem. So now, let's move forward. 1917, the British ruling the land. And of course, we have in 19, uh, uh, end of 1918, or some say 1917 actually, at the end of it, the Balfour Declaration, which means, and we do have it, by the way, do we have it on the website? I think we have it on our website. The Balfour Declaration, which means in general, it says that His Majesty, the King, he is in favor of the Jewish people having their homeland back in what is called the land of Israel. So they were on the right track. And then, of course, during that time, there was another great uh, 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 colonel by the name of uh, Ord Wingate that, that took the, uh, uh, the idea of the Bible, like how Gideon, Turned, uh, uh, and Abraham and Gideon and Joshua trained, uh, uh, guerrilla warfare and ambushing at night. So he trained the future military leaders and general of Israel, including Moshe Dayan and Itzhak Rabin and Itzhak Sadeh and some others. You know, so there were some of them that really had it right. Another one was Colonel Meinshagen. And there's quite a few of them. But then the magic word. Oil. 
Then the oil became intoxicating drink for the British Empire. And they lifted out the cup, the cup of intoxication, which is Jerusalem, and they started to drink it like the rest of them, and they got intoxicated with that. And then they started selling and training, selling arms to the Arabs and training the Arab army and guerrilla warfare against the small fledgling Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. Now, let's fast forward, 1947. 1947 was the mandate that was actually given by the UN and the UN resolution of 1947 that says that the Jews after the Holocaust should have a land. And then in a span of 30 years, as some godly people of the British Empire coming into the city of Jerusalem and holding on to the, to the land of Israel, in 30 years they have become an adversary. Okay, what happened to those that says this? Let me quote something you never heard before. Adonai said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curses you. Have you ever heard that? No, you never heard that. Okay, just tell me this is the first time you hear it. Okay, I repeat it. God said, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those that curses you. So, they were blessed in the first time, in the first trimester, and then they started to curse the Jewish people. Now tell me, where is the British Empire today? All fallen apart? Worthless? High unemployment? They can hardly hold to their own British Isles. With the Irish kicking them in the butt, you know, up north, constantly. <laughs> Go Irish. Now, where are they today? The thing of it is about the British that they still think, and many of them do, think that they still the world empire. I told you that before, but I'm going to say it again. The head of Intel came to Europe and he stayed, for 20, stayed there for 24 hours, mostly in England. And then he went to Israel and he stayed for a week. When he was asked, why you stay only one 24 hours period in, uh, in Europe, mainly Britain, and then a whole week in Israel, he said there was more brain in this little land than all Europe put together. So, as the British moving forward, they have been removed, the lions Wings have been plucked as it was swift, as it was great, and it had the greatest navy in the world. Now it has been reduced to nothing. And the wings were plucked, the wings of eagle, the wings of the eagle, right? They were plucked, and meaning when the wings were plucked, meaning the authority has been taken away from it and been given, it says here in verse 4, and was lifted, it, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. What is the national symbol of the United States of America, my dear friends? The bald eagle, right? Right there on, you know, as we have it here in this picture, you know, in front of the uh, flag of the United States of America. There's wings that were being given have been to stand up like a man. What does man, what is the difference between a man and an animal? 
Man can receive God, man can worship God, man can acknowledge the existence of God where animal doesn't. You see, it was given a heart of men on top of it. The people that came to the new land, the United States of America, were people with man's heart. Meaning there's a renewal. There is a new heart. There's a new spirit. There were the pilgrims that coming out of the persecution of Europe and they were coming here to have religious freedom. Isn't that the case here of American history? Of course it is. And now... This particular eagle is becoming, and you know, as we see the, the progression of world history, and this wings of the eagles now replacing the power of the lion. Why? Because the eagle is the, 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 he's the king of the air. Eagle is the one that when a storm comes, you know what the eagle does? The eagles actually lift himself up above the storm and he just hovers over the storm until the storm comes and then he goes back to his nest. And America sure, sure has proven herself. After 1917, the victory of World War I, and then in 1945, the victory of World War II, God has propelled America, the United States of America, above all other nations onto the top above all the uh, um, world empires about all the world uh, above all the world powers and with all the storms the united states even as we speak today with all the problems that we have we still soaring over you agree with me things will change and we will touch on that as we i go we will go in depth about the role of the United States of America in last day's prophecy. But let me tease you with this. All, not that just one, all have said that the United States of America plays no role in the last days. And it really baffles all Bible professors and prophecy teachers and so on and so forth. My dear friends, they are all mistaken. Why? Say, come on, Rabbi. Why, you're the only knowledgeable one here. I'm the only one that knows Hebrew and Aramaic. At least among those that I have talked to. I will prove to you. And I will show you through the Hebrew scripture that the United States of America, not only that is referred to, but mentioned. Not only mentioned by passing, but by name. And I will show you the colors of the United flag, United States flag, United States of America's flag in the Bible. One by one. And I will show you the end time fate of the United States of America. But we will do that. Later on, let's continue. As now the lion's wings have been plucked, now there's another beast. Verse 5. And suddenly, another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs between, uh, in its mouth, between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Dear friends, who is the bear? Many say that the bear now is the Medo-Persian Empire. But if you think that God will waste another chapter on something that he already revealed, 
Why would he waste another chapter on that? And take us back. You see, those that don't understand, it says that Daniel was written after the fact. Don't understand even the simple fact of his, facts, of, uh, facts of history. Who is known as the bear? Russia. Of course. Now, the Russians have been considered the bear since we know it in modern history. At first, it was the Tsarist Russia. And then, again, after 1917, when Jerusalem was conquered by the British, by the so-called God-believing, fearing people, so was the Bolsheviks have conquered the Kremlin, which was the seat of the Tsars of Russia. And what happened? Communist Russia, or the USSR, has come to be. Now, if you don't know anything about communism, communism is a pure Jewish idea. If you don't know, our people have brought a lot of things to the world, including the polio vaccines, including the uh, theory of relativity and quantum theory by Einstein and so on and so forth, which we don't have the time to go through. All those Nobel Prize winners that many of them are Jewish. But also the idea of communism came through another from another Jewish fellow by the name of Karl Marx. Many people don't know that the Karl Marx family was messianic Jewish family. And Karl Marx actually wrote several essays about the Bible. However, when he arrived in Britain, <clears throat> he was encountered, or he encountered the theory of evolution by Darwin, Charles Darwin. And with that, he concocted the whole idea of communism. And there was a great, fierce battle between them, between Lenin and Trotsky, and uh, later on Stalin, and some of the other ideologues that some of them left. Who left? At that time, the land of Israel was freed from the rule of Islam. And at that time, the British were welcoming Jewish people. So many Russian Jews, mostly Russian and Polish Jews, have come to the land. And of course, a lot of them with the idea of pure communism. Israel, until today, some of it already have been fallen apart because for different reasons, but Israel, until today, exercises the purest form of communism. You know that. It's called kibbutz. And Israel was founded, or many of our borders have been defended and founded by people of the kibbutzim, which is the purest form of communism. I have many friends that have been born and raised in the kibbutzim, and I uh, know a lot of the stories, but I can tell you one of them told me that at the time when uh, uh, Stalin died, that was like a great morning day in the kibbutz. People were crying, flags were half-staff, and so on and so forth. So, Russians also are known to be one of the most suspicious people on the face of the earth. Think about it. Although 
was said that uh, I have some Russian ancestry through my great-grandfather, hence the name Shor, which is a Russian Jew. Think about it. Ten months, pretty much. Nine to ten months out of the year is cold. And there are few months out of the year that is so cold. And there are a couple months that is so darn as cold that no, no, no one even dared to pull his nose out of his house. So what do you do all day long? You sit there around the kitchen table, drink vodka, and plot how to conquer the warm places, which is the rest of the world. Now, the Russians have been known to be the leading anti-Semitic country in the world, even until today. Although the Germans have surpassed them, but actually taken it a step further than that and trying to exterminate the whole Jewish race, which we know, hence the Holocaust. However, the Russians are known to be, through the pogroms, to be some of the most vicious anti-Semitic people on the face of the earth. It was the Tsarist secret service that wrote the elders, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which basically says that the Jewish people have a plot and they want to conquer the world through their economic power, and they are going to rule the world. Let me tell you something. They're right. We will rule the world. And how are we going to do that? When our greatest son, Yeshua HaMashiach, comes to Jerusalem, he's going to rule the world. And it's going to be a Jewish son that's going to rule the world. You bet. <laughs> now, the Russians. Communism has fallen. Yeah. Remember 19... When was that? When Reagan stood there in Berlin, 1980-something? Uh, uh, I should know that better. I think 83, 84, when he said, stood there... No, it was more towards the end of his uh, uh, reign, actually. I think 86, 87. And he says, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And eventually and he called it the evil empire. He didn't call it for nothing, the evil empire, because they are evil. Their communism is one thing. And one thing only is about how to conquer the world. And sometimes they take two steps forward and one step backward. And lately, with the fall of communism, it seems like there is nothing. Russia is finished. Russia is done. And there is no more Russian bear. Really? You must be kidding me. You must don't know a thing about world history. Let me tell you something. This is one of this ploy of the two step backwards in order to regain. And they say, oh, well, the Russian economy have collapsed and there is nothing like there. All the kolkhoz and the, and uh, kolkhoz and, and the, the, uh, whatever the kibbutzim as they call it over there, the kolkhoz have collapsed and the Russian economy is in shambles. And there's no more KGB. Well, there is. They call it the Russian Mafia. Just a different name. And who is ruling that? We have him now for the second term. He was a general in the KGB at the first term, and then he became a president, and now he renominated himself and became as another president, Mr. Vladimir. Hello, Vladimir Putin. My dear friend. You see him, when you see him, the guy never smiles. Always. 
Like something about to attack him is always suspicious. Suspicious is a KGB guy. Now, the Russian economy have never stopped producing weapons. Oh, well, you say we have the uh, SALT Treaty, SALT 1, SALT 2, all the ICBMs have been uh, dismantled and all the nuclear warheads have been dismantled. Let me tell you, my dear friends, nuclear warheads have a shelf life. And the one that they have put there in the junkyards are the old tanks and the old airplanes and the old warheads that they have dismantled. But they have produced more and even greater with greater technology. Just yesterday, their anti-aircraft missile, which supposed to be jammed by our greatest Western technology, managed to pull and shoot down a super phantom, a Turkish super phantom right there on the, on the shores of uh, Syria. Just yesterday. A lot of things are happening. The Russians are not finished by any stretch of the imaginations. Putin looks at our president he just simply laughs at him. And we talked about ours versus theirs before. You can get the CD for that. But let me explain to you. The Russians, the bear, the Russian bears with the three, with the three ribs in his mouth are three, three continents that they are pretty much uh, in control. Do you know? That Russia pretty much uh, uh, controls the continent of Asia. Say, really? Of course it is. I mean, Russia itself, you know, as it was, it says that it was now raised on one side. Why on the one side? Because the one, the one side was first communism and now it was raised on the other side. You see, it's like he is crippled, like he is powerless. Oh, by no means. Uh, bear is a ferocious animal. With one swoop of the claw, it can rip you to shreds. And this is exactly what it is. You know, three continents. One continent is the continent of Asia. And you say, where is Asia? Well, hello. There is communist China. Have you forgotten, you know? All we wear. I mean, I have everything that I'm wearing here is from Costco and everything made in China. <laughs> Asia. Africa. Who sells all the weapons? How come the African continent never settles down? There's always a rebels group. There's always another coup. There's always activity there. One tribe against the other. And then... You can't have a, a stable government in Africa. How come? Because the Russians stirring them. And they sell weapon to this one and weapon to this one. And the Americans come in and we say, that, okay, well, we're going to pr uh, promote peace and let give a, you know, so we send few airplanes with some food and then we send few more airplanes with our weapons to them as well. It's all about money, my dear friends. So here, where is the third one? The third one, which is the greatest continent, they don't have all the control of it, but they have much control. It's the Americas. Say, how come? Well, America has a very strong communist notion to it. If you have no idea about it, just look at this new healthcare proposal. If this is not find its core in communism, I don't know what it is. 
I grew up with the national health care, which Israel, by the way, is great, but not the Russian system. But say, okay, forget about America, we're still democracy, we're still a republic, it's wonderful. But look all the way south of us. I mean, <laughs> they just rise up every day. I mean, we have a little bit island called Cuba or Cuba. It's still like a thorn in our side until today, and this sucker Castro still alive. How come? How come he's still alive? He's a communist to the core. And now he has a new friend by the name of Chavez, which now connects with the Iranians. Is it possible that they are supplying him with weapons? I don't know. I don't want to get into the intelligence and all that stories, but just to give you the illustration. And look all the way south. Did you know that Brazil now have a communist president? This woman is a communist. Go study a little bit of history and look at world politics, and it's all there. Now, in closing here, my dear friends, after, verse 6, after this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Man, this is amazing beast. This is a leopard. You know how ferocious and fast leopard is. And not only that, he has wings too. You know, we call it tiger. In Hebrew, it says the tiger. Because there's no word for a leopard or a tiger or a cheetah. It's all from the same family. It's called namer. Which namer is tiger. Okay? Now, and not only that, has four heads and has wings. Wow, this is an amazing animal. Again, this animal, who is this animal? Many says that, okay, this is the Greek empires, that then it was the Alexander the Great with his four generals that uh, when, when he died, they ruled the, the, the empire, the Greek empire, and so on and so forth. Okay, that's fine, but let me submit that to you. This Namer, this tiger, this leopard, is China. It's Asia. Not only China, but China represents the power of Asia, which consists within it the Koreans, north and south, and Taiwan, which is also a good economic power, and of course Japan, which is part of Asia. This is the four heads and the wings. Let me read something to you that I found about China. In China, the tiger is considered king of all beasts, not the lion. And represents powerful energy. Further, the tiger is associated with Chai Shen Ye, the Chinese god of wealth. And this god is usually seen sitting on a tiger in Asian art. Continuing the quote. Asian lore, Asian lore considers the tiger the protector of the dead. And will often be seen on graves, on graves as a mark of protection, assuming Assuring peace for those who have power, energy, royalty, protection, generosity, illumination, and unpredictability. I'm pausing here to just explain to you. China is the rising power in the world of such power have never seen before. If we don't, if you don't know, if we don't understand, we are now indebted to China. The Chinese can flip the switch and our economy will fall. 
well, they will fall too, and many others, but we are indebted to the tune of more than several trillion dollars, or ten, somebody said like ten trillion dollars to the Chinese. I may be wrong, I'm not an economist, but we owe them a lot of money. The bottom line. Now, everything is made in China. Why? Because we are gluttoned for the cheap goods that they produce so we can continue to be the consumerism of Americanism continues and continues and all comes from China. We used to laugh at the Japanese, ha ha ha, made in Japan, ha ha, made in Taiwan. And now people all say made in China. Let me tell you, if the Chinese will stop their factories tomorrow, we will all be here with nothing. Because we have moved every single factory, with few exceptions, all the way east. I mean... First it started south to Mexico and so forth, but all the way east to China right now. Now let me continue. As the Chinese now are the rising world power. In ancient Chinese myth there are five tigers that hold the balance of cosmic force, forces in place and prevent chaos from collapsing into the universe. These five tigers are white tigers, ruler of the fall season and governor of the metal elements. Black tiger, ruler of the winter season and governor of the water elements. Blue tiger, ruler of the spring season and governor of the earth elements. Red tiger, ruler of the, ruler of the summer season and governor of the fire elements. And lastly, yellow tiger, the supreme ruler of all these tigers and symbolic of the sun, end quote. Isn't Japan or the Orient, Asia says, the, the, the continent of the rising sun? So you see, the symbolism can be applied to modern empires as well. If we don't know, and if you don't know that China, since 1992, when China has established diplomatic relationship with Israel, their economy have risen to the tune on the average of 12% per year. Where our country now, we're going to be really, really, really rejoicing if we pass the 3%. So you can see the amazing power that the Chinese have. And verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. After this, I saw... In the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was, devour it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I mean, listen, guys, this is a lot of information. I know some of you looking at me says, Rabbi, this is so much. And I don't want to bore you with so much information you cannot comprehend. What I want to tell you, and I'm going to stop right here. And I'm going to tell you that this is the last world empire. Many said that this is the Roman, the revived Roman empire. No, this one is going to be a combination of all of them. Of all the world empires together, which is also known as the new world order. Which one world government. And I'm going to stop with this and I'm going to tell you. Look up. Because hope is all we have. And hope that we have is hope in the Messiah Yeshua. Fear not. 
Because he is coming soon to redeem his beloved one. God bless you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. That was, if you're not familiar with it, Jimmy Kimmel and Matt Damon have this ongoing feud between the two of them. Very hilarious. And uh, this morning, uh, what we're going to be talking about is what many people consider to be a feud between Kepha, Peter, and Shaul, Paul. And uh, so I thought it would be nice to come up with something light. I actually uh, find it hilarious watching those two interact with one another. Galatians, of course, is the book we are studying. Often, again, people have considered it a book about grace versus law, but instead, uh, our understanding is that it is a book about God's unlimited grace, which he provides us through our personal faith in Messiah Yeshua, and this gives us the security of his peace. So when we think about the book of Galatians, we want to understand that the book is all about the Besorah, the good news, God's righteousness. That's what the book is all about, all right? So, today, again, we're going to be looking at something. It's the crisis of integrity. Crisis of integrity. And so, uh, let's go ahead and first read the text. So, turn with me, please, in your scriptures to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11. Page 1,114. If you're having trouble finding it, page 1,114. All right. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. For before certain people came from Jacob, he regularly ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, so that even Barnaba was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not walking in line with the truth of the good news, I said to Peter in front of everyone, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we have in this text this interesting confrontation. Fascinating, actually, in so many ways. We'll kind of unpack it here. But we have to understand the context. This is These are, what, five verses, four verses, 11 to 14, it is still an introduction to what is this long section. I want you to understand, I want to reiterate this, because I'm going to say this over and over again, the book of Galatians has this massive section, the bulk of the book, dealing with one topic, the purity of the Besorah, a clarification as to the purity of what the Besorah, the good news is. How does a person come into right relationship with God? That is the only focus. And we're going to unpack that, especially from a theological position moving forward, because there's an awful lot of confusion about this. Now, 
The big idea here, though, that we're going to focus on today is very practical. How do you confront people? You walk on stage chewing an apple and kind of pile it on. You know, maybe not, but do you pile on when you confront people? Here we have a situation where we have a confrontation from someone who is a minor leader to someone who is the key leader. Kepha, the minor, uh, Shaul, the minor leader. Kepha, Peter, really the leader at this point, because this is all pre-Acts 15, the leader of the Messianic Jewish community in Jerusalem. And yet there is a confrontation. And so we learn an important principle that I want us to focus on, and that is that scriptural confrontation must seek to preserve two things, the integrity of the good news and the integrity of the individual confronted. Two things. Scriptural confrontation always focuses on preserving the biblical truth. The biblical truth, and in our context in this text, the Besorah, as well as the, the integrity of the individual confronted. Right? It's all about protecting these two things. We're going to talk about it this morning. So the first thing we're going to do is focus on the confrontation. Again, when we look at the text, you look at verses 11 to 13. I mean, what's fascinating here, oh, and I got a map. <clears throat> Peter, and this is not found in the book of Acts, really, but Peter's hanging out in Jerusalem. And this is somewhere, again, before Acts 15. So it's somewhere in like 10, 11, 12, 13. He goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. So he goes up to Antioch, which is off the map up there. It's that dot right at the top. He goes up to Antioch because the community there is growing. And there are many people coming to faith, both Jews and Gentiles. And at this time, Barnaba and Shaul, Barnaba specifically is up there, and he grabs Shaul, and they're trying to minister to these people. And so Peter goes up to check it out because he's like the leader again. And what occurs is that when it's just Peter and he's with Barnaba and he's with Shaul, they're all together. It's one united group, regardless of background, and they're worshiping the Lord and they're fellowshipping together. But when people come, as it says, from people from Jacob, from James, the brother of Yeshua. So in other words, from emissaries, now not Peter, but emissaries from Jerusalem and from uh, James come, or Jacob comes, there is this sense now that things are no longer clear. Before these people come, it's clear in essence, but after they come, it's not clear. Now what's going on? Have you ever thought about this? Have you read this passage and wonder really what's going on here? I mean, the people sitting around having pork roasts and over, over an open spit, and, uh, and, and uh, Peter feels guilty about it because the guys from James come up because they're bringing kosher meat from, uh, from Hungarian in Jerusalem. No, it's not like that. A couple of things we have to understand. In the first century, Jews and Gentiles didn't socialize. We cannot appreciate it. We cannot appreciate it. But if you were an observant Jew, meaning if you were part of the Jewish community, all right, if you had not intentionally left the Jewish community, and some of that happened, there are examples of people who were Jews who basically renounced their Jewish identity in different ways, and they left the Jewish community. But the vast majority of the Jewish community didn't do that. And one of the distinct, uh, distinct things they did is they didn't socially hang out with Gentiles. Can you think of one other place in the scriptures where we see this played out? Joseph, his brothers, and the Egyptians. 
says Joseph ate by himself, his brothers ate by themselves, and the Egyptians ate by themselves. Why? Because they didn't eat together socially. We don't understand it. But it was a social norm in the time. Jews and Gentiles didn't socialize. That's the issue, by the way, that really comes up in this text. Fact, Kepha was, then wasn't, then others followed because of his actions. Those are the facts that are laid out here in 11 to 13. Kepha was socializing, then he wasn't socializing, and then others stopped socializing as well. Those are the facts. The reason, though, is, is sometimes what, what gets people uh, in a tither. The reason is confusion and fear. Confusion. The confusion is, should we socialize with Gentiles? Should we? We don't do that. My whole life, Gentiles have been considered impure. That's the key. So if you're a Jew and you're an observant Jew, so don't think, you know, you know, most of American Judaism doesn't think. Most of the Jewish community in America doesn't think like this. But think people that really care about issues of purity and impurity, which is the vast majority of the Jewish people in the first century. To go and eat with a Gentile meant you went into a situation that was not Jewish space, and you had no idea whether or not that Gentile kept any kind of a purity, uh, uh, any, any sense of purity for themselves. That's the issue. The issue was not because they're lesser people. It was not because they hated Gentiles. It had to do with issues of purity. Anybody here ever gone to the mikvah? All right. Anybody here ever been immersed in a mikvah? Jewish community and the religious community should think observant, conservative, orthodox, maybe a very, very uh, uh, traditional Reformed Jew. The idea is you go into the mikvah and you, you become ritually pure. Uh, my friend Yochanan, who is a uh, sofer, a Torah writer, every morning he goes and he immerses himself in the mikvah because he writes Torah scrolls. He, he fixes them and writes them and he does religious literature. And he wants to make sure that he is ritually clean. It used to be that only the Orthodox would care about a, a mikvahs. You know, they built a mikvah up at the conservative synagogue off the freeway, Beit Hillel. Why? Because within conservative Judaism, it's now picking on the idea of ritual purity. Reform. Kind of, but not really the same. But the idea of ritual purity, that's the subject here. That's really the problem here. Are these Gentiles to be expected to be ritually impure, and therefore we cannot spend time with them? That's the question. But that's not dealt with really answered in this section. It's answered in Acts 15, by the way. All right. But in this text, that's the point of confusion. That's the reason that Peter and Barnaba and the other people withdrew. They realized that there might be a problem, therefore they withdrew. But really, I think, and this is what really gets Paul upset, is that there was a fear element here. They feared these guys that have come from Jacob, that they are going to have a higher expectation for practice and observance that's going to be then put on uh, the Antioch community. And that's what's dealt with later on, okay? So I want you to understand, when we're looking at this incident, where there's a confrontation, at the very core of the incident is confusion and fear about something that has not been settled yet, yet, within the Messianic Jewish community. And it's, it is like, if you think about it, if you really allow yourself to think about what the community was like, how they were trying to figure out life as followers of Yeshua, in about 47 
48 CE AD. You gotta, you gotta humbly acknowledge that they were shooting in the dark. Okay? They were, they were trying to drive without maps. Whatever illustration you want to use. Now, the issue here that really gets Shaul mad is the hypocrisy issue. Okay? Is the hypocrisy issue. Alright, and, uh, before we do it, we're gonna see another video. Trust is a very, very important thing. Our survival depends on it. We're highly, highly attuned to it. I had the great honor of visiting Quantico Marine Base in Quantico, Virginia. And on the day I was there, this is where the Marines select their officers who will then lead their Marines into battle. And the day I was there, the colonel in charge of OCS was about to give me a presentation on, on about their selection process and how they run things. And there happened to have been an incident while I was there. And they were considering throwing one of their Marines out of the Marine Corps. So, of course, curious Simon, I said, well, what, what happened? You know, it must have been serious if you're considering throwing him out of the Marine Corps. And they said, um, we caught a guy falling asleep on watch. I said, in Virginia? Like, that's it? You know, it's not like he was in combat or something. You, find, you, you caught a guy falling asleep on watch in the woods of Virginia, and you're going to throw him out for that. A little strict, don't you think? And the guy said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, when we questioned him about it, he denied it. When we questioned him about it again, he denied it again. And only when we gave him irrefutable proof that he had uh, fallen asleep on watch, did he say, and I quote, I want to take responsibility for my actions. And the problem we have in the Marine Corps is that you take responsibility for your actions at the moment you perform those actions, not at the point you get caught. You see, integrity matters, he said. If I'm going to put him in charge of a group of Marines in combat, and they're not 100% sure that every word that comes out of his mouth is the truth, if there's any doubt that he's saying things to cover his own skin, it puts people in danger and people will die. Unless you're completely, completely honest, we cannot have you in our Marine Corps and we cannot let you lead. Being honest is a very, very simple thing. All it means is you tell the truth. I would rather you disappoint with the truth than appease with a lie. And it goes back to our survival instinct. If we sense for a moment that someone is lying to us, the question is, will we be able to go into a foxhole with them? Again, there's a, there's a benefit to group leaving, leading, living in an anthropological sense. It means that we can fall asleep and trust that others in our group will watch for danger. And if we don't trust that we can fall asleep and allow others to watch for danger, we fear they're going to take something from us or not alert us to danger or not wake us or not defend us, then we'll never fall asleep and we'll never trust anybody and eventually we'll all die. Okay. Listen, that's profound. I will, you know, if you didn't really hear it, you should go listen to it again. All right. What he's basically saying is integrity matters. The man fell asleep. He's, didn't, he's not going to get discharged for falling asleep. He's going to get discharged for lying. All right? Lying. Integrity. What is integrity? The quality of being honest. That's terrible. I can't read anymore. The quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. The quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. We live in a society today where people have very little integrity. Just watch the news. What's sad is that we live in a society where often religious leaders have very little integrity. If Chaplain Jay Kurtz was here, and I know he's struggling, we've got to keep him in prayer because of his cancer, all right? But he would say, are you a whole person? Are you a whole person? What we're going to do here is we are going to take a look at this challenge from Shaul the Kepha, because this is really the key 
practical application for us from this text. First of all, Shaul in this text, I'm going to read it again, verse 14. He says, if you being a see, verse 14, but when I saw that they were not walking in line with the truth of the good news, I said to Peter in front of everyone, if you being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And what he means here, again, I want to, we're going to deal with this for the next couple of weeks. He is not saying if you are living like a goy, meaning you are going out and you're eating non-kosher food and you're breaking the Shabbat and all this stuff. That's not it. And I can demonstrate that from Acts 15, which is after the fact here, and the fact that Shaul is the one who's been getting down on him for this. And yet at the end of the book of Acts, 20 years after this incident, Shaul is saying, I have never broken any of the laws or the customs of the Jewish people. Don't ever think that Peter ever ate anything that was unkosher. Because Paul never ate anything that was unkosher. It wouldn't even come to their minds. If you have any questions on that, talk with me later. But in this situation, the thing that Shaul is really upset about is the inconsistency of Kepha. Now, if any of you know me well, and most of you know me well, I have my inconsistencies. We all do. You don't think you have inconsistencies. You have to confess your sin for lying, okay? The issue here is that this is a huge public issue. Huge public issue. Leaders are always held to a higher standard. Leaders have to stay awake, Zachary. Leaders have to be consistent. As much as they can possibly do it, people have to see that there's integrity, that they are whole people. Shaul is saying, dude, you're messing things up here. You are eating with them because we've been all together eating ever since this Kehillah and congregation came about. Because, yeah, I mean, a quarter of the city is Jewish, but these Gentiles came to faith, and what are we going to do? Tell them that they can't believe in the Jewish Messiah? Yeshua said, go to all the nations. So we've been hanging out. Kepha, they're not impure. Kepha, they understand the expectations. This is a Jewish communal grouping. Remember, the Jewish belief in Yeshua, Christianity, all right, which meant the Christianos were followers of this anointed messianic, which is just a Greek word for Jewish concept, was always seen as a Jewish sect until after the destruction of the temple, and probably until you get to the to the second century sometime. So, Kepha, yes, they're Gentiles, but Kepha, they understand that to be a part of our community that that they're not going to bring pork-laced gefilte fish. Kepha, don't worry about it. When they come and they hang with us, they're not bringing in meat sacrifice to idols. Kepha. Everybody in the Roman world does bathe on occasion. They're not bringing in diseases. Okay, just trying to cover the board here. Kepha, do not be inconsistent. These are brothers in Messiah Yeshua. Don't withdraw from them for fallacious reasons that are irrelevant in our community. So also went on to say that there's an issue here because by withdrawing, you're taking away from the Besorah, the good news. The Bessara that says that all people come into right relationship with God by faith alone. You're in essence giving in to this group from James, this small group from James that still has it in their head that Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be in right relationship with God. 
Kepha, that's wrong. That's false teaching. People come into right relationship with God only by faith. Period. It's all about a preservation, as I said, of the Besorah, the good news. But the last point, I think, was an important motivating factor for Shaul. Kepha, your integrity as a leader is at stake. I'm sure that for, you know, when you compare the two individuals, Shaul is this highly educated, probably 35-year-old guy. He used to learn from Gamaliel. He knew all the secret passages in Jerusalem in the temple area. Shaul had all this understanding, but Kepha walked on water. Kepha spent three years with Yeshua. Yeshua said, do you love me? And Kepha said, of course I love you. And so Shaul wanted to make sure that Kepha, at this point of confusion, didn't make some stupid mistake that would damage his integrity in such a way that his ability to be a leader, really at this point I think the leader, would be impugned. Yeah, James Yaakov is seen as the leader. You know what? He's, he's Yeshua's brother. That's why that's why Yaakov is the leader in Jerusalem. But Peter's a pillar, a stabilizing force. And without him, there would be huge problems. This is not a confrontation out of arrogancy. This is not Kepha getting all bent out of shape with Peter or Shaul getting all bent out, sorry, Peter getting mad at Paul and Paul getting mad at Peter. This is Shaul. This is Paul out of humility and love and actual respect confronting Peter because he cared about the preservation of his leadership. Scriptural confrontation must seek two things. The preservation of the integrity of the good news, the Scripture, and the integrity of the individual confronted. Now, a couple of things for us to consider. First, do you consider the effect of your actions? Do you consider the effect your actions will have on how people understand the good news of Messiah? If you serve in an area of responsibility of any kind, do you understand that people are looking at you to be an example? To show the way. You've got to understand the importance of your actions. You are a testimony for good or for ill. How good is your testimony? Now, all of us as believers in Yeshua have a testimony. People look at you and they know you're inconsistent because you're a human. You blow it. But are you, are you desiring to live your life in such a way that can, people can see the best or other good news through you? That means you have to care about the inconsistencies. If you are struggling in certain ways, be humbly acknowledging about it. Don't be arrogant about it. Just remember, your actions will either enhance or distract from Messiah's message. God forbid that because of our actions we lead people astray. I've heard more often than not from children, from young adults, that they themselves have not come to faith because they've seen too much in the lives of believers. It's like to point out my own brother Joe has seen so much hypocrisy as a bounty hunter because of some of the work he's had to do in dealing with religious people who have been hypocritical that he doesn't have much good to say about religious people in what specific actions are you inconsistent in living your life as a follower of messiah yeshua and i stuck shabbat up there because hey listen there's a we're a jewish community in what ways are you not being consistent in what you have said is your observance? All right? I'm not telling you to be dati. 
to be, to be orthodox in a way that you're not. But in what way are you inconsistent with the things that you say you do value? All right? But more importantly, what are your issues and inconsistency regarding the basic things, like your language? Whether it's words you use that are of a bad nature, like, I don't know. We all struggle in some ways with language, whether it's swearing or gossip or angry words, you know, whatever. Relationships, you keep grudges. <laughs> Blows my mind. I get mad at somebody, and I forget about it. <laughs> now, that's something I really struggle with that much. Some people really struggle with it. There are people that can't remember why they're mad at somebody, but they're still mad at them. That's inconsistent. To the gospel message, love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Finances. Where are you inconsistent in your finances? Remember, everything you have is from God, not from you. Are you giving generously in support of the congregation and God's work? Are you just being a responsible steward of the money that you have? If you're not, then it's inconsistent with God's expectation for you. And in this last note, who are you afraid of? Remember, there was confusion at one point, but Kepha, Peter, was afraid of these emissaries from James. Why? Because they held a view, and we're going to talk about this later, next week probably, they held a perspective that was too high and lofty, and it wasn't even an appropriate perspective for these individuals. Yet Kepha came to fear their perspective, and Shaul deals with it next week. Do sometimes... You act in a certain way because you walk into a room and let's say you go to the sandwich club and everybody over there is orthodox and suddenly you start washing your hands. But you never wash your hands. You do it because you're trying to, you know, you're afraid of looking like an odd duck out. Hey, first of all, I should tell you, there are plenty of orthodox Jews I've seen in the sandwich club who don't wash their hands either. And they still eat bread. <laughs> who are you afraid of? Do you adjust your life and really break your conscience because of what other people might say. Now, yeah, there's chains of command and all these things in life and greater community. We have to live together. But it's more of fear. Who are you afraid of? And this is the thing that said, who do you fear more than God? Let's fear God. Let's respect people, but let's fear God. Let's remember that God is the one who will hold us accountable. And that as we live our lives as followers of Yeshua, right, we develop convictions among ourselves and individual convictions, communal convictions. But let's fear God and have him hold us accountable. If we see people, though, who are acting in a way inconsistent with what they say, let's not be afraid to confront them. But in essence, to do it, we Shaul did out of love and for the sake of the individual's integrity. If Matthew walks into a McDonald's, and he orders this grand Big Mac with cheese. And you see him eat it. He doesn't see you. And then he walks out. And then in, he's here at the synagogue talking about keeping kosher. Then the right thing is to take him aside privately and say, you know, I saw you eating a grand Big Mac with cheese. And I thought about this because, man, I wish I could eat that. i got to go to Must be the one they have in Israel, right? But you, you'd say, Matt, you know, I saw this. And there's a, it's inconsistent. Because you say you keep kosher, but pretty darn sure McDonald's in America isn't kosher, especially with cheese on it. And he says, yeah, you know, I appreciate you challenging me. I gave in to my baser desires. That's how confrontation's done scripturally, to preserve his integrity, to do it in love. I know many of you do it with me. Should you really eat that second dish of food? I know it's out of love for the most part. That's what confrontation is scripturally. 
Preservation of the Besorah, the good news. Preservation of the integrity of the individual. That's what Shaul did. It wasn't because there was a pork roast going on. Not sure about what's going on? I encourage you to read that text if you haven't done it. Acts 9 through 15. Because there you see it laid out. And Acts 15 is really the key text. And uh, next week we're going to get into the nitty gritty of some of this. We'll keep moving forward in the text, but we're going to be touching on it. To better understand exactly what the heck is going on in the book of Galatians. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you love us. You have provided for us your righteousness through our faith in Messiah Yeshua. And that God, even in this text, that we can understand better what it means to be people of integrity, whether that's integrity in our own actions or integrity in terms of showing love because of questions about others' integrity. God, I pray that as a community we would be known as individuals who love one another, even to the point of speaking bluntly into the lives of each other. God, we thank you that that's illustrated here. We thank you that we see that in the life of Yeshua, our Messiah, in the lives of others. We just thank you, God, for your scriptures, which help us better understand how we can live our lives your way. We pray all this in Yeshua's name. You're listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio streaming on Podbean. If you have any comments, let us know. Your sharing, liking, and subscribing helps Solace Radio reach those in need. If you would like to support us, visit www.solaceradio.org. Talk Radio for Inquisitive People. Solace Radio, Montevideo, Colorado. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you guys all for coming. This is a, a, a nice sized crowd. This is good. Um, and all, y- all y'all, all y'all, whatever you guys are, that's, that's Southern for you guys, everyone at home. Um, you know, glad, you, glad you're with us as well. And I know that we've got some folks who are regularly here in person who are traveling today. Uh, so safe travels for you guys. Hope you're doing, doing well. Uh, and all those who are, are regularly watching, uh, again from home. This morning's Torah portion, Parshat Bechukotai, uh, I will remind you that last week's portion, Parshat Bahar, um, I said at the beginning of the message last week that it was one of the shortest of, of the, the portions because typically it's read with this portion. Usually we read Bahar and Bechukotai together, uh, and so, but this, this year there were enough Sabbaths so that we, we separated them. That's how that works. Um, and we'll still read through the entire Torah in the year. Uh, but what that means is that this Torah portion also happens to be a shorter Torah portion. It's, it's a little less than two chapters long. So not, not very long at all. Uh, it begins in, uh, cha- oh, I forgot to mention this. Earlier this week, I picked up my new glasses. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, and I'm not looking for accolades or anything like that. I had nothing to do with it. Right? I had nothing to do with it. But, I decided that I was not going to get my you know, the, the, the traditional bifocals that I got. I would just take my glasses off to read close up, which is what I had sort of been doing anyway. But I found myself in a position now where I can't read my notes. <laughs> so if I take my glasses off and put my glasses back on, you'll understand why, or I may just actually leave them off and look at all y'all blurry faces. Um, anyway. Parshat Bechukotai begins in Leviticus chapter 26 in verse 3 that says, Im Bechukotai Techelu, or Telechu, which means if, Im is if, in my statutes, Bechukotai, 
uh, you will walk. Okay, that's, that's what it means. And by way of overview, okay, he starts off by talking about the fact that there's blessings for obedience. Blessings for, for being obedient. And any time in the scriptures you read about blessings for being obedient, almost right behind it comes what? The curse is for disobedience. And it's almost always a rule that however many blessings there are, there are at least twice as many curses for disobedience. Okay? It just it just sort of happens that way. Um, but th- that's how we see this, this Torah portion sort of opening up is with the blessings for obedience and then the consequences for being disobedient. Okay? And he says, actually, I can make this a little bit bigger. Um, one of the things that he tells them is that uh, the land needs to get this rest. We, we talked about the Shemitah years uh, last week and the, the Yovel year, the year of Jubilee, in last week's portion. You know, this is just a continuation of the entire story that is the Torah. It's one continuous document. This is the, just a continuation of the story. He goes into saying, hey, look. When you break that that particular rule, he didn't say if. When you break this particular rule, the land is going to get a rest anyway. He says, I'm going to take you out of the land so that the land can get the rest that I'm commanding it to take that you didn't let it take while you were there. Now, it's interesting that we're, we're reading from the prophet Jeremiah because the prophet Jeremiah was also the one who told the king at the time you're gonna, this is it. You know, what they talked about in the Torah, that, that your, the land is gonna get a rest, cause it's gonna, every year it says, every year it should have gotten the rest, it's gonna get the rest, and you're gonna go into captivity. Okay? That's exactly what happened. That's why Israel was taken into Babylon for 70 years. Cause for 490 years, that's 70 Shemitah years, okay? 70 sevens. And they didn't let the land lay fallow on the, those Sabbath years. So in, into captivity they go for 70 years, and then the land got the rest, just like God said. Go figure, right? Okay. So the land is going to receive its rest either way. Then again, there's another part of the, the chapter, actually in, in chapter 20, uh, 27. 27? Yeah, in 27. It talks about valuation and how to value things. Uh, and in in that particular section, it talks about holy things, and it talks about that holy thing, whatever 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 is set apart for God, whatever is set apart for God is holy. Now, when we think about that, we think about God setting things apart for Himself, and of course, those things are holy. Of course, that's not what our Torah portion is saying in this week's portion. What our Torah portion this week is saying is that the things that you decide for yourselves are going to be set apart for God, that's holy. That's holy. Of course, by definition, holiness is being set apart for God, but that includes the things that we here on earth decide are going to be set apart for God. If we decide that our house is set apart for God, then that's holy. And according to the scripture in this month, in this in this week's portion, those things that are holy, that we have set apart for God, cannot be bought, sold, or traded. 
Yeah. I could talk a lot about that and, well, well, what do we do with the house that I've decided is set apart and sanctified for God? Do I have to hold on to that forever? Not going to talk about that. Not going to talk about that this week. That's not the direction the Lord showed me to go. Um, but it's an interesting question, and, and perhaps you guys want to discuss it amongst yourselves. Did you talk amongst yourselves? That's fine. You can do that. Um, so what I really wanted to sort of bring up is that this particular passage, and I mentioned it earlier when I was reading begins with the word im. Im is the word for if. So there is, for you mathematicians, this is an if-then clause, okay? Or you grammarians. Um, it's an if-then clause, meaning that it's a conditional statement. If this happens, or if you do this, then this. Else, this. So that's computer programming too. So it should cover everybody. Everybody should understand it. God's blessings require our obedience. God's blessings require our obedience, which ultimately is nothing more. And people get get all upset about that. I must be obedient? But look, it's not about the obedience. Ultimately, what that is is nothing more or less than a choice for God. That's what that is. It's a choice for God. Now, establishing that principle, so God says, if you choose me, you're going to get these blessings. Now, it wasn't designed to force us into obedience. He didn't say, do this or die. He didn't say, you must do this. Because, look, if that's really what he wanted, he could have done it himself. He could have given us no other option. He's God. He can do that. But he didn't. Establishing the principle of choice for him is is not designed to force us into obedience. Rather, what it does is it shows us the way. It's like... It's like a neon sign, a bright neon sign with, with, with an arrow pointing towards God, saying, this way to God. He's paving the way. He's smoothing the road into a relationship with him. That's what this is for. It's, it's, it's designed to show us that a choice for him is a relationship with God. Now, how does he bring us into that relationship. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray, and then I want to show you a short video. Avinu Malkeno, our Father, our King, we're so grateful for the fact that you even want a relationship with us, and that because you want a relationship with us, you have shown us the way to the relationship with you. Now, we know that that relationship comes through your Son, Yeshua, our Messiah, and only through Yeshua the Messiah. But Lord, today we want to see that that is the choice for you. So teach us, Lord, in your word. Show us uh, all the things you would have us see. Uh, and even if it's different for each one of us, Father, we know that you're speaking, Father, because you're here. You said that you would be here, and we trust you. We love you, Father, and we know that you've loved us even first. So thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Help us to be different leaving here today than we came in. And we ask all of this in the precious name of your son, Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. So I started thinking about the relationship 
between God and Evan, and how God was calling him into that relationship was, well, was, was Evan called? Was he called? Or, 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 or was he chosen? And now you're thinking, oh, um, I don't know. Wait, was he, could, was he both? Maybe? Well, what actually, what's the difference? What's the difference between called and, and chosen? What, I, Rabbi, I don't know. I don't know. So, can you be called? Can you actually be called without being, being chosen? Oh, yeah. That almost sounds like the Bible. <laughs> good for you. That's good. Can you be chosen without being called? Things make you go, hmm. Think on that for just a minute. Uh, and then see if you can think about the difference. There's clearly a difference because the Bible says, you know, what is it? Many are, many are called, but yeah, yeah, fewer, fewer are chosen, which means there's got to be a difference. So let's start thinking about that, um, while I'm talking. Think about that while I'm talking. So the portion this morning again starts with the, an em, an if, a conditional clause. Um, what that word means is it implies a potential reality, a potential reality. What that means is that when God said, if you, if you do these things, if you obey my, uh, my statutes, uh, and, and my judgments, oh, and, and my instructions, then you will be blessed. It means that God knew that there is a potential reality for them to do that. It's potential. Now, not likely, <laughs> but, but there's a potential. It also means that he knows that there's a potential that they wouldn't. Okay? I want you to understand that. Most of the time, we tend to think of it first in the negative. Saying, if you do this, we, we have a tendency to think, well, I know, it, it's not likely, but if, if you do this, then you'll get blessed. What's way more likely, and that's why there's so many more consequences for when you don't, then these things will happen. God thinks first about the potential positive. Do you get what that means? That means he knows that we have it in us to do it. He knows that we also have it in us to don't. But he starts with the blessings for obedience, which means he knows we've got that potential. The reality is we have the choice. Again, he could have just said, no, there is no free will. There is no free choice. This is what you're going to do. He could have gone, he could have gone all the way back in time to Genesis chapter three and put the snake in a cage, never let him out, and we would never have the circumstance. Sin would not be part of the world. But God gave us choice, which is an interesting thing to do. And we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But he gave us the choice. What is it that drives our choices? Now, every single one of you has already made this morning. What time is it now? It's 12, 12. It's 12, 12? Oh, there's a big one in the back. I can see that. It's 12, 12. 
You have already made so many choices this morning. You decide, you chose what to put on this morning before you left the house. Well, first of all, you chose to put anything on before you walked. That's a choice. Yep. Yeah. You know, you chose what route to get here. You chose what to talk about with the other person in your car or with yourself to talk about, you know, on your way. You made those choices. You chose what to have for breakfast or even not to have anything for breakfast. There is a wonderful team of theologians from Canada who once wrote, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And of course, we know who those theologians were. Rush, the, 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 the rock band. That's what they said in, in, in one of their songs. But it's absolutely true. You have made already so many choices. Now, God has set those choices before us. And in every instance, he has sort of given us the neon sign. Over each one of those choices, this is the choice to make for me. This is the choice to make for the other way. Okay? That's why he gave us all those sort of, you know, what we might consider strange, strange commandments in the Bible. This, he's just sharing with us what the right choices are. That's all. That's all. These are the right choices. These are the choices that point to me. And that's the choice that I want you to make. If you don't, you are free to make that choice. But this, this is the choice that leads to me. That's the choice I want you to make. What leads you to that choice? Well, yes, there is a journey. Um, so you, your your last choice, but I'm, I'm actually, now I'm thinking about it, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you. Your last choice does not determine your next one. That has to be true. If that wasn't true, then we would continue in sin forever because one choice leads to the next, and that is not how the Bible teaches us. In one instance, we can make a bad decision, and in the very next instance, we can make a good decision. So it's not necessarily your last choice that leads you to your next choice. It's your calling. What is leading you to make the choice? What is a calling? What's a calling? And I don't mean, hello. No, I don't mean that kind of calling. What's a calling? A calling is a strong urge toward a particular way of life or career or vocation. A calling is a strong urge toward a particular way of life or career. Now, that's how like Miriam Webster defines it. That's, that's a calling. Okay. According to the theological word books, okay, a call from God is a summons to draw near to him in communion and service. A summons to draw near to him in communion and service. Not everybody is called. Actually, that's not true. Everybody is called. I'm lying. That's a trick. Everybody is called. Are you called? Listen to that definition. Are you called? There's there's three things here. Three things. Are you summoned? Use that term. Are you summoned to draw near to God? But right, let's let's take out the word summoned because that's 
that's even a little bit you know, gray. Have you been invited to draw near to God? Yeah. Every single one of you has. Every single one of you. And you guys watching at home, every single one of you has. And I don't care if you're a believer in Jesus or not. Every single one of you has been invited. Invited to draw near to God. The invitation's there. Hopefully, all y'all out there who are watching this now have, have accepted that invitation. But everyone has been invited. Okay? So that's, that's drawing near. Have you been invited to have communion with, with God? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Have you been invited to serve him? Yes. Now, just for the record, the Hebrew word for servant is the same as the Hebrew word for worship. Avodah. Eved. Same root. So we have all been called into the service or the worship of God to experience communion with him, to draw near to him. That's everybody. Lottie Dottie. Everybody. So many are called. How many are chosen? Well, what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, a being chosen is not related to a calling. See, a calling is to one degree or another a choice. You've been invited whether you respond to it or not is your choice. Being chosen has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. And everything to do with the one doing the choosing. Now, chosen is not related to a calling. It's not related to anything external, not dependent upon us at all. Being chosen is an internal condition bestowed upon us by God. It's God's choice. Did you hear what I just said? God's, God's what? Choice. God, so we're made, we're made in the image of God, but Selim Elohim, right? But that doesn't mean we all look like him. Look around the room. It means we're made and imbued with the characteristics that God has. The capabilities that God has. God gave us the ability to choose. Which means God also has the ability to choose. We don't really think about that a lot. God could have chosen not to choose us. Right? God could have chosen to... In fact, there's a song we sing during Passover called Dayenu. And if you think about this song, it's really all about the idea that God could have chosen differently. When we say, you know, if God had, had delivered us from Egypt but hadn't given us the Torah, Dayenu, it would have been enough. Which means that we're recognizing God could have chosen not to do that, not to give us the Torah. Even though he decided to bring us out of Egypt, he could have decided not to give us the Torah. That was his choice. But he continued to make those choices over and over again, God has a choice, and he gave us the choice to enter into a relationship with him. That's a calling. He invites us, and now we have a choice to make. Are we going to follow the little neon arrows to choose for him? Or are we going to choose 
to go the other way. I've only gone down the wrong way, down a one-way street once. Didn't like it at all. Nothing happened. In fact, until I got to the end of the street, I didn't even know I was going the wrong way. Because I didn't see the little sign when I went, started going down that street. When I finally got to the end of the street, I was, I was driving this way, and there is a one-way sign pointing the other way. That's when I realized I, I, I was going the wrong direction. Now, there was nothing I could do about it. I had already gone down that road. So I, 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 I got off that street, and you know, now I was going in, in, a, in a good direction. But I had made a choice. How we come to make our choices is a whole different story. Sometimes you miss a sign. Sometimes you're unaware. So, you know, there's just, there's so many different reasons and ways to make a choice. Um, what we have to be aware of is that God gave us the little arrows, gave us the ways to, to him. And if we follow those directions, okay, we let him be our GPS, then we'll always be going the right way to him. And God said that the way to him is through Yeshua. So we always know that that's the way. That's the way. But in our daily lives, there's all these different little things that that just help us into this relationship with God. If we walk in his ways, we walk in his ways, which is exactly what our Torah portion this morning is titled, Bechukotai im Bechukotai it's it's from the, the same root word as halach or halacha, which is the way to walk in, in Judaism. If you will walk in his ways. It says if we walk in his if we walk in his ways, what it means is we're putting our trust in him. We're choosing for him, which means we have a relationship with him. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. He wants us to deepen our relationship with him. And deepening our relationship with him means learning what those little arrows are and where they are and how to follow them. And if we don't, we won't. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have a relationship with him. If we put our trust and faith in Messiah, we have a relationship with him, but it can be superficial. If we're not following the ways and looking for the ways to deepen our relationship with him, you know, we're, we're missing out. We're missing out on what? Blessing. Missing out on blessing. God wants us to know, he wants us to know that he has a choice and he made it. Now, in, in our blessing before the Torah, it says, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us. How many of you have heard that the Jewish people are called the chosen people? Chosen people? Yeah. How many of you have ever heard Tevya say, but once could you choose somebody else? Right? Yep. Further on the roof. God chose us. He had a choice. That means he didn't have to. I'm saying this over and over again so you realize he chose you. It's interesting how, how sort of themes repeat themselves over and over again. For any of you who are joining us for our Wednesday night Bible studies, okay, the topic of chosen 
was a big topic of discussion this past Wednesday. And as I reread our portion this morning, it was sort of in my mind, if you couldn't tell. There's this idea of being chosen. Okay? In, uh, in 1 Peter, which is where we are, <coughs> Peter calls all of the believers who are spread, scattered throughout Turkey, he calls them, and it, there's a long discussion about them, he calls them chosen foreigners. We'll just leave it at that. Okay? For those of you on, the, on the, the Bible study, you might have a different way to translate that, and that's absolutely okay. For the sake of this, you know, it's chosen foreigners. Now, in Hebrew, there's a couple of different words that are used to, that are translated as chosen. Thank you. The word that's used in our portion or in our, in our blessing uh, this morning is bachar. Bachar means chosen. Um, it means selected, and it's almost always used in the sense of God choosing something or someone over something else. Okay? That's how it's used. We see this word used in Deuteronomy 7 uh, in verse 6, and then again in Deuteronomy 14 in verse 2 when it says that God chose the people of Israel. He chose them over every other nation. But it wasn't random. It was with purpose, with intent. There's always a purpose for it. It's chosen by God. The word we read about in First Peter is the word eklektos. Eklektos, um, it, it means chosen. It means select. It also means favorite. So again, we're seeing this this idea of a preference, a choice of one over the other. And then there's one of the theological word books that defines it this way. Eclectos is chosen or worthy of choice. Worthy of choice. This eclectos is the word that's used to translate bachar in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 2. When God looked at the children of Israel and chose them, it wasn't because he knew they were going to follow everything correctly. It wasn't because he knew they were going to follow everything incorrectly either, but that they were worthy of the choice. Real quick, I want you to see that this is how God sees us. When Peter calls the believers in Turkey chosen, it means that they were seen by God as worthy of the choice. It goes on to say in the beginning of verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. That's where we are, by the way, in our Bible study. So if you want to join us this coming Wednesday, we'll be digging into that idea. Okay? But he says, according to the foreknowledge of God, it means God saw beforehand that they were worthy of the choice. That's how God sees each one of us, worthy of the choice. Now, we talk about um, the New Testament portion real briefly before we close. Um, there's this wedding feast, and this sort of parallels the wedding feast in, in the other Gospels, but not exactly. So he's got this wedding feast. The wedding feast is ready. 
and he sends for the servants. He sends for the, the invited guests. He says in the Greek, he says, Kolese tus keklemenos, which is he called to call for the called ones. So these are the ones who have been invited into relationship. This is really interesting. The wedding feast is ready. Heaven is calling. And he sends his servants. The king sends his servants to call the called ones. And who are the called ones? The ones who he said were what? Invited. You see this, this parallel story? So these are the invited ones. And what does it mean to be invited? It means that you have to go, right? Well, unless it's a family member and that, well, no. Yeah, no, it means you have choice. You don't have to accept the invitation. So he's, he's calling out to the ones who were called, who ones who were invited, and they said, no. They said, no. So they made a bad choice. Like, uh, Indiana Jones and the, the Last Crusade. You've chosen poorly. So the servants go back and they say, look, they didn't come. They didn't want to come. So then he goes out and he says, choose the, you know, go out and, 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 and call all those, uh, that, that hadn't been called yet. He says, go out and, and bring all, everybody else in. So the ones who had been invited rejected the invitation. So, the servants then go out to bring everybody else in. And everybody came. It was indiscriminate. Okay, everybody comes. But not everybody was qualified. So the ones that weren't qualified ended up getting kicked out of the wedding. And what's left are those who were chosen. Think about the choices we make. And I think about the good choices and, and the bad choices and how we have been you know, before our Messiah came, we have been locked in and chained and bound to our bad choices, but we're not locked into them anymore. We have the ability to make those good choices, to choose for God, and we can choose for God because God chose us. There's another Bible verse that says we love God because he first loved us. That's what I'm talking about. I remember everything. The whole the whole scriptures boil down to love. Loving God, loving others. That's what I'm talking about. Through God's love that he chose, chose to love us. It's like it's like he did with, with Israel. He said, I didn't I didn't choose you because you're bigger. I didn't choose you because you're stronger or faster or bionic or had the best looking cars. I didn't choose you because your name has L in it. I didn't choose you for any of these reasons. I chose you because I love you. And that's not New Testament. That's Deuteronomy. From the very beginning, God chose to love. Every choice we make should be made out of that same love for God. I'll close with this. Everything that God does for us. Some of you may have heard this this before, but it, it bears repeating. Everything that God does for us, just because he loves us, is grace. Unmerited, unwarranted, but just because he loves us, 
He wants to do it for us. So he does. Everything he does just because he loves us is grace. The greatest manifestation of his grace is his son. The embodiment of grace. The epitome of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So that's that's grace. That's the love of God. Everything that we do, just because we love God, worship, worship, or service, if you want to look at the Hebrew. We are all called into his service, into communion with him, into draw near, drawing near to him. We're invited into that. We have a choice. That's the choice we need to make today. In everything we do, choose to draw near to him. Choose to follow the direction to him. In fact, we just say it, choose for him. Because he has already chosen for you. If you've not chosen for him by placing your trust and faith in Messiah Yeshua yet, now is the time. Don't miss those blessings. Don't miss the relationship. Don't miss the calling that God has on your life. Don't reject the invitation. It's there for you. If you need to know how to do that, contact us. We'll be willing to help you and make the choice for God. Let's pray. Avinu Shabbat my Father in heaven. You are a great and glorious God and King. You've chosen us. And Father, we have chosen you in the big way. What we want, Father, is your help to choose you in every little way, in every single way that we can know you and draw into that relationship with you deeper, as deeply as we can possibly go. For that's the calling, to draw near to you, draw close to you, to be in communion with you. And Lord, by doing so, we ask that you draw others through our relationship with you to know you. So Father, we thank you for, for breaking the chains of our sin for allowing us to make the good choice and for desiring us, for choosing us first. We thank you, Father, in the name of your Son, Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. B'Shem Yeshua Mishikhenu Sar Shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. Thank you for listening to Solace Live Radio and Solace Radio streaming on Radio.co and Podbean. You are the best listeners any radio station or podcaster could ask for. 
Thank you also to all of our podcast partners, including Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn.